0: You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs.
1: So, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Very welcome to this evening's seminar, uh, Russia in the Middle East. Um, My name is Martin Krogh. I'm the head of the Russia and Eurasia program here with the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And it is my great pleasure to introduce our two uh, seminar participants here uh, today. Uh, Aron Lund, who is a fellow with the Institute and the author of a new report, uh, Russia in the Middle East, uh, a thick report on the developments in the region, and Aaron will talk about uh, his results from the report here today. You can also already now on the, our website download this report. Uh, and to his left, you have Maria Georgieva, who is a journalist for Svenska Dagbladet uh, and other uh, news outlets uh, based in Moscow uh, for uh, a number of years now. And uh, uh, she will follow up on Aron's discussion and talk a little bit more about the role of Russia and Russian perspectives uh, on the Middle East. Uh, We have about uh, 90 minutes at our disposal, so uh, we will first hear from the speakers, eventually we'll open up for discussion with the auditorium. I would also like to highlight that uh, the Middle East theme is continuing already next week on Tuesday, where we have a seminar on Turkey, which will also deal to some extent with Turkish-Russian relations and so on. Uh, please also sign up uh, and visit uh, this seminar. Um, and last but not least, if you are on social media, if you are a troll or just active on Twitter, uh, go on, use the hashtag, uh, hashtag UI event, and uh, feel free to tweet uh, about your impressions. Uh, but Aron, uh please. All right.
2: OK. Nice to be here. Uh, so uh, I-, I should start by mentioning that I'm in the curious position of having written a report about Russia without being a Russia expert, so my my, my focus has always been the Middle East, and uh, we we felt that it would be interesting to look at the uh, evolving and clearly gro- growing Russian role in the Middle East from the other end, instead of looking at it from from sort of the Moscow perspective and seeing what what does Russia want, what does Russia do, would see you know what, how how does this how does this impact the region, what what happens when Russia uh, enters the Middle East. And not being a Russia expert, of course I've relied on a lot of people who are Russia experts and there's two of them uh, are here in the in the panel and there's a lot of them mentioned in the report and there's a few of them who are not mentioned in the report as well and and um, uh, trying to, to, uh, to summarize the report is is perhaps difficult because it's quite long and it covers uh, quite a lot of ground. It goes from, From Russia's, from sorry, the Soviet Union's uh, involvement with the Middle East, through post-Soviet times up until the present day, and that's quite a long stretch of time. It covers, it uh, tries to cover uh, uh, the the varied interests. There's security. There's all manners of alliances in Soviet times and post-Soviet times. There's the 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 eternal tango with the United States. Um, There's there's gas, there's oil, there's uh, counterterrorism, and, and many, other, many other issues. But I think when, when people today speak of Russia, or when, when articles are written and reports are written, this report included, there's always the sentence, Russia's back in the Middle East. And that's a cliche, and I also think, like many cliches, it's true. Because what Russia had, or rather what the Soviet Union had, in the 60s and 70s in particular, but also to some extent the 80s, was a a, a large, uh, a very impressive presence in the Middle East, which decayed very quickly from the '80s onward, through, of course, the, the the end of the Soviet Union, and did not recover until in the uh, the, the 2000s, really. And the uh, the very rapid uh, growth of Russian engagement with the region and Russian influence in the region that we've seen recently comes really as a result of or at least in conjunction with the Arab Spring of 2011, the wave of revolutions that rolled on from, from Tunis to Egypt, to Syria, and Libya, and so forth in 2011, and then of course culminating in the Russian intervention in Syria in 2015. The way uh, the Middle East looks from a Russian perspective uh, to the best of my understanding is that there's always been uh, a strong focus on on, uh, sort of the northern tier of the Middle East. There's Turkey, there's Iran, there's Afghanistan, nations that bordered the Soviet Union in in, in days past, and and, uh, although uh, the end of the Soviet Union has made Afghanistan slightly more distant. Um, That said, Soviet influence never really reached uh, at least Turkey and Iran. Both of those nations were partly as a result of of overconfident and overly aggressive Soviet pressure in the 1940s after the Second World War firmly locked into the Western camp during the Cold War uh, to compensate for that. And also as a result of Russia's, sorry, the the Soviet Union's growing influence generally in in those days through the Third World. Uh, Khrushchev and and, uh, his successors, Tried to invest more heavily in in the Arab world, the Middle Eastern nations to the south of, of this this northern tier, and the centerpiece of that influence, of course, became uh, Egypt under Gamal Abdel Nasser, the the Egyptian ruler from the 1950s until 19, 1970, who was a leader of of, uh, of the Arab nationalist camp in the progressive Arab nationalist camp in in the Middle East, and in Nasser's uh, uh, Alongside Nasser, there was also relations developed also with the other sort of, quote unquote, progressive or radical Arab republics, uh, Syria, Iraq, Algeria, South Yemen, um, and with the Palestinian movement, the PLO under Yasser Arafat and, and some of the other leftist Palestinian movements. This influence was not sustained in the long run. Uh, it shrank uh, uh, from the from the 1970s onward particularly with Egypt's defection from the pro-Soviet camp to the Western camp through the Camp David agreement and the peace peace deal with Israel, but also because other uh, Soviet clients or allies started to discover that the Soviet Union could not deliver on the promises that it had made to these nations. It ha- didn't have the economic power underpinning uh, the very ambitious political and military posture it had adopted in the Middle East. And then comes, of course, the Afghanistan War, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Uh, fighting through the, through the 1980s, uh, which further dents uh, Soviet influence and credibility in the Middle East. And then, of course, the Soviet Union ends uh, in, in 1991. Following that period, uh, Russia, independent Russia, uh, certainly had a great deal of interest in the Middle East, uh, in some ways even more interest in the Middle East than the Soviet Union. Uh, the Chechnyan Wars... Uh, in the 1990s, and, and even after that, uh, created a great deal of concern over uh, about uh, uh, Islamist radicalism, uh, uh, fundamentalism, and Salafi preachers in Saudi Arabia and other places. That suddenly, unlike in Soviet times, were able to reach into into the Caucasus, into the into Central Asia, and other regions of concern to Russia, or even within Russia, uh, creating a, a a great deal of of uh, concern over uh, radicalism within these communities. That was a a great uh, uh, Russian interest. Oil continued to be an interest. Attempts to create trade relations with nations that were rich but firmly locked to to the U.S. side was an obsession through the 1990s. But mostly Russia has struggled to maintain whatever interest it had. It struggled to, to collect debts from Soviet days when arms had been given out for free or on, on credit without much success. And the Russian role doesn't really start to, to, to grow in the Middle East again until in the 2000s, uh, driven both by uh, uh, an increasing Russian diplomatic military economic muscle, as largely as a result of oil, price increases, which in turn are a result of the Iraq War to some extent, so there's a a Middle Eastern connection there as well, but also because of Russia's growing um, confrontation or or, uh, more assertive foreign policy or or more confrontative, and and in the end, uh, 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 today there's a a bit of a Cold War again with with the West, and this too uh, affects the Russian attitude to the region. Uh, So, without going too deep into that, I think the the tipping point uh, certainly is the 2011 Arab Spring. Uh, When this begins, as it begins in 2010, actually, in in Tunisia in December 2010, uh, culminates in the spring, of course, of of 2011. When this begins, uh, the Russian government, then under President Medvedev, uh, Putin as prime minister, is already very skeptical of of US policies in the region, which are identified with, well, first of all, growing influence and anti-Russian attitudes and so forth, fear of so-called color revolutions and other other, uh, more or less rational fears, Uh, but also uh, a, a great concern for the stability of the region and the way that chaos, as seen after the Iraq war, could impact Russian security, spill over into Chechnya, rekindle conflict across the Caucasus and in Central Asia. Uh, The the start of the the Arab Spring in 2011, 2010, 2011 is met with a great deal of uh, skepticism uh, from the Russian side, whereas European politicians and American politicians generally embrace the uprisings in the Middle East and see some sort of a repeat of the 1989 democratic revolutions in Eastern Europe. That's not the way it looks from Moscow, partly perhaps because the 1989 revolutions are not viewed the same way. But the, uh, the attitude from the get-go, even in relation to the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt, to firmly Western-allied or U.S.-allied, uh, French-allied regimes, uh, even there, there's a great deal of skepticism and concern that this will feed chaos, this will lead to Islamists coming to power, to other things that will be detrimental to Russian security or Russian influence. When the wave of uprisings hits Libya right after that, Russia takes a curious position, doesn't veto the uh, the UN Security Resolution, Resolution 1973 in March 2011, which is proposed by by Western governments and with the backing of the Arab League uh, to use all necessary means, I think the quote was, uh, to protect civilians in Libya. And this turns out to be a fig leaf for for, uh, an intervention that actually aims to achieve regime change in Libya. The Western governments, including Sweden, goes in and topples Gaddafi. Russia approves or, well, it doesn't vote in favor for the resolution, but it approves it. It, it. it doesn't veto it. And and then immediately there's conflict within the Russian government. It appears Putin criticizes Medvedev why didn't you veto this? And there's a great deal of, of, of discontent uh, in Moscow over how the war develops. What exactly happened, what uh, the, the Kremlin thought that the, resol- the resolution would lead to or what it had been promised in return, That's hasn't to this day been Become clear, but over the course of the Libyan war, which goes from March to October 2011, when Gaddafi is finally killed and Tripoli has fallen, uh, Russia goes from being sceptic and and sort of uh, sceptical and and uh, and concerned to being outright hostile to to Western behavior in the region. And in parallel with that, we have the uprising in Syria, which begins in March 2011. And like Libya, Syria, of course, is an old Soviet ally, a much closer ally to the Soviet Union than ever for Libya. Uh, and in Syria, the, Soviet, the uh, Russia uh, takes a, a, a firmly, strongly pro-Assad decision from the start of the uprising in March 2011. Vetoes a first resolution that would have, a fairly mild security resolution that would have criticized Assad's conduct uh, in October 2011. Vetoes another, more, more, uh, more uh, uh, stronger resolution in February 2012. And by that time, has drifted into a, a highly polarized uh, diplomatic environment around Syria with Iran and Russia against the United States, France, United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, uh, a number of other nations, including many nations that Russia had spent a great deal courting in order to, um, for, for, for trade or for energy cooperation or arms sales or other reasons. Uh, but Putin at this point seems prepared to abandon all of that and go all in on Assad's side. And that, in, in the early days of the war, That confounded uh, uh, many, many Western leaders who couldn't understand what were the Russians doing? Why are they doing this? Assad is clearly about to fall. Why are they investing in this this doomed regime? But it appears that the Russian analysis of the situation was far more accurate than the Western analysis. They could correctly perceive that Assad's regime was broken and dysfunctional in a great number of ways, but it wasn't about to fall if given adequate support. And they were strongly hostile to the idea of another, as it looked from Moscow, US-backed regime change in the Middle East in the footsteps of Iraq, of, of, of Libya, and so forth. Uh, as the war proceeds, Russia continues to veto resolutions alongside China. China is never the driving force in this. China just rallies behind Russia whenever Russia signals that it will veto something in the Middle East and China. In about, say, 60 or 50% 60 50, of the cases, China goes in behind Russia and adds its vote to the veto. It continues to sell arms to Syria, but generally tries to prop up Assad on the cheap without providing great deals of money or great deals of of weaponry, uh, letting Iran do a lot of the the heavy lifting in Syria. Until 2013, when there is the chemical weapons crisis in Syria, Uh, Assad is accused of having used chemical weapons. Uh, Sarin, the, the UN, and... OPCW uh, investigation later concludes that sarin was used in, against rebel-held uh, areas in Syria. And Russia then concludes a deal with the United States, uh, later sanctioned by the, uh, the, uh, the UN Security Council, a unanimous resolution to disarm the Syrian chemical weapons program, dismantle the Syrian weapons, chemical weapons program. And to sort of piggybacking on that, they are going to start new negotiations, peace talks, uh, but even though the deal is initially successful, chemical weapons continue to be used and are later uh, pinned decisively on Assad's government by the UN and OPCW investigations. Russia denies everything, of course, vetoes any attempt to sanction or hold Assad accountable. And there is a continued conflict over the, the peace talks, which do not end up the way either side would have liked. There is still a, a great gap dividing the two sides. And and generally the the conflict just feeds the the climate of tension and and uh, and, um, and anger between the United States and and Russia. In two thousand fifteen, of course, uh, a year after the or more than a year after uh, Russian Western relations have have taken another and much more serious blow from the events in Ukraine, where Russia forcibly annexes Crimea, uh, the. Uh, uh, the Russian government, again in cooperation with Iran, launches a military intervention in Syria in September 2015. The Russian aerial intervention turns things around. It signals Russia's complete commitment at this point to Assad and to the pro-Assad axis in, in Syria, of Iran, uh, Iraq, Hezbollah, some other nations. And it is, generally speaking, quite effective. Uh, Cost effective, even. Uh, The the intervention doesn't seem to have cost a lot of money. It took a fairly small military force to tip the scales. Uh, And what is now? 2019? Four years later, three years later, it's clear that Assad has, in some sense, uh, gained a strategic victory in Syria. The war isn't over. There's still a lot of, of conflict to be had, but Assad isn't going anywhere. And to a large extent, that is Russia's doing. Uh, Russia wasn't the the uh, was, wouldn't have been able to do it alone, but it wouldn't have happened without Russia. And the way um, this plays out in the region uh, is that it greatly strengthens Russia's standing among many of the Arab nations and many of the nations in the region, uh, Arab and non-Arab nations. Initially, the fear was among some Russian policymakers and analysts, as well as. Uh, the the conclusion of many Western analysts and journalists and others. They said that if Russia goes all in on the Assad side, on the side of Iran and Hezbollah, it will identify itself with the Shia uh, nations in the Middle East. It will alienate Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, other nations that are Sunni and and, and, uh, fear Iran and so forth. That didn't happen at all. Uh, The opposite happened. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, all of these nations that are seen as the leaders of the Sunni "quote-unquote" camp in in Arab politics have, in fact, lined up uh, to to intensify relations with Russia, not because they agree with Russia on everything. To the contrary, they disagree with Russia on a great deal of things, but they see Russia now as a uh, an assertive and and influential player that is willing to go in and going hard to protect its interests, and as something you have, someone you have to have a conversation with. Uh, lest they end up on the other side of whatever dispute you're in. So across the region, we've seen in- increased engagement with Russia. We've seen increased Russian arms sales. We've seen, uh, especially, of course, the nations that are in internal crisis uh, for, for, for other reasons, uh, have quickly gone to Moscow. We saw now that when the Uh, The demonstrations erupted in Algeria. Uh, It didn't take long for the Algerian deputy foreign minister, just appointed by the president, to fly off to Moscow and try to to extract some promises of support, and Russia gave some sort of tepid endorsement of of, of, uh, the process there. Uh, Similarly, in Sudan, when there is also a crisis right now, there is suddenly talk of granting Russia access to naval bases on the Red Sea and so forth trying to, to, uh, to position, uh, these, these regimes try to position themselves as strategic allies to Russia and hoping for the same kind of, of no-holds-barred support as, as Assad received. In the end, I, I, uh, I think the years after the Syrian uh, intervention, as I said, there's much still to come in Syria and in the rest of the region, but the net... Uh, result of that intervention and of Russia's foreign policy since 2011 has been quite effective, quite effective. Uh, Russia's influence has grown. Uh, Russia has become a player to an extent that it certainly wasn't before and certainly was not in the 1990s when Russia was much weaker. And it stands to gain economically and strategically from this in a, different, you know, in a number of different ways to a fairly limited cost. The cost, I think, uh, might come in other areas, Uh, The Syrian war, in particular, but also Russia's, uh, other aspects of Russia's behavior in the region, has not, as I think uh, the Kremlin hoped in 2011, 2015 especially, been uh, transformative uh, in in relation to relations with, to to ties to the West. There was an idea that if we go in, in in Syria and we sort things out, we help crush the Islamic State, we do all this, we prop up Assad, we make ourselves an inevitable uh, uh, pillar of the order in in Syria and in the region, then the United States, which, you know, they're a little angry over Ukraine, but they will come to the table. They will come and talk to us. They will have to, you know, they they cannot isolate us when we have all this power. That didn't happen. Uh, Instead, the United States is basically just withdrawing from Syria. They're still mucking around in northeastern Syria with the Islamic State and Kurdish forces there, but there's no longer any concerted attempt to, to overthrow Assad. Russia has been left the victor of the war, but there's very little to to uh, there's there's very little payoff in Syria itself. And I think the 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 broader question is that even if the the policies since 2011 and with Syria in particular have been beneficial to Russia's influence and strategic presence in the Middle East, how will they years from now be seen? Uh, to have affected Russia's broader strategic position and broader influence in, in the world. If, if if the Syrian war has given Russia influence in the Middle East, but at the cost of increased conflict with the United States and with Western Europe and with certain other governments, was that worth it? And I don't think we know the answer to that. And we'll see if one can compensate for the other, or how this will, will play out. I'll, I'll stop there, I think. Well,
1: thank you, Aaron uh, uh, with a round of applause.
2: Um,
1: this, um, a uh, 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 very interesting and thick uh, analysis of uh, uh, and the real tour de force of, of the developments over, over many decades. Um, uh, Maria, w- would you like to, uh, to just add on to, to, the, to the debate? And I think there are many threads where you can start Definitely.
0: You know, uh,
1: discussing this. Yes.
0: Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Auron. So I, I wanted to pick up on the thread about the essence of Russian strategy. Because there's this great quote that I want to take a moment and just mention by the late Russian Prime Minister, Yevgeny Primakov. He said, play a weak hand well. And I like to think back on this quote every time I, in my work as a correspondent, try to question, so what is Russia after? What does Russia want? Because this essence, play a weak hand well, it just reminds everyone that the strategy or lack of strategy, it it's it involves something about exposing its, Russia's opponent's vulnerabilities. And that is very important to keep in mind when we're thinking about um, who is Russia cooperating with, what are the Russian interests today? And uh, I'm mentioning it because uh, we have this polarized uh, domestic debate in Russia um, and also, in its foreign policies, that the West is losing ground and it's actually strengthening Russia's hand. So by playing uh, a weak hand well, it enables Putin to be more effective in his divide and conquer strategy in the Middle East. And uh, I wanted to just start by mentioning that. And uh, what's happened is that also what Aaron was mentioning, I'm not gonna talk so much about that, but. Moscow leverages influence uh, by including all of the countries with a stake in the outcome of the Syrian war. Um, Foes such as Iran and uh, Israel, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. And uh, Putin is talking with everyone. They're flying to Moscow, and uh, they hear and listen to all sides. Anyone who wants to speak, Russia listens. So that is also a good point to what I wanted to add. And uh, what happens is that Putin makes uh, Moscow a top priority for leaders with any problem to solve. And that is what uh, also is uh, important to mention. And uh, they promise maybe nothing, but they talk to everybody. So in that sense, uh, you have... Russia's focus on business deals, the ties that compensate for the impact of US and European sanctions, which also is an important factor to mention here. Uh, It segmentates Russia's role as a a regional influencer. And uh, these companies about what what Russia actually is doing is that they're signing billions of dollars worth of deals, especially in the oil and gas uh, ventures, uh, they're trying to cooperate more with Saudi Arabia, and uh, it's also there is a Russian state-owned nuclear energy firm uh, that has contracts now to build, build like nuclear reactors in the Middle East. So Moscow is has a long-term strategy and a long-term goal here. But what I also want to bring back focus to is that maybe there are strategic goals, but also there's a a very weak economy in Russia, always affecting uh, what Moscow can do or cannot do uh, in the sense of that it's uh, it's not sustainable in the long run to have long-term relationships with Russia. And basically, these people that Russia are talk- is talking to knows this, but it's still something that you cannot really think that... Just because we're talking that we're striking these deals, everything is gonna follow through. So I also think that that is important to mention. Uh, The ineffectiveness of the Russian economy also um, portrays what we're seeing. What can I say more? In that sense, Russia of course has been, is guided by its interest of grabbing influence, striking deals with local government leaders but it also means that russia can be used by these regional powers for their own purposes and uh, in that sense also moscow cannot compete in the terms of other region like the u.s ability to trade or to invest like both china u.s or india are much bigger partners than russia actually is so we need to be a bit careful when we're talking about what they can actually accomplish in the in the long run That is my main
3: point.
1: Um, Thank you. Uh, Thank you both uh, for your reflections, your input. Um, We will open up for uh, questions and answers in a while. I I just wanted to push a little bit on an issue both of you raised. Um, Aron, you mentioned that um, Russia has been very active in its diplomacy in the Middle East uh, throughout the region, and um, they have relatively functional Relationships with countries very diverse, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iran, Israel, Turkey. Implicitly in Syria, they are not only cooperating with Iran, but also Hezbollah, which is doing a lot of the fighting um, on the side of Bashar al-Assad. Um, so they are able to have a functioning diplomacy with all with this sort of m- monthly crew of different countries, but, but with the West, it seems uh, it, it, the relationships are completely strained. Uh, in many respects, um, it seems it should be easier to deal with the with the soft uh, Germans than than with the Saudi Arabians or the Turks. Uh, but uh, how come? Wh- wh- why do you think this has been the case? I mean, could you see it from your analysis of Russia in the Middle East, what they're doing there, which is different from what they might be doing in their relationships with the with the West? Well, I
2: can guess. <laughs> <laughs> um- I think uh, part of the answer is what Maria said that Russia is talking to everyone. That's not just a slogan. It is a slogan and it's a broadly advertised slogan, widely advertised slogan. And they, they make a point out of it since Primakov days, actually, mm-hmm. in, in, in the 1990s, and Putin as well. Um, and that means that everyone knows that they can talk to Russia. There's always a, a point in going to Russia to get that perspective. Russia can always deliver something. Uh, mm-hmm. Through, diplomatically, or or or, or uh, in terms of trade, or or other types of protection. Um, but I think in 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 general, then maybe the answer is that Russia's relationships in the Middle East are much more shallow than those than the relationships to the to Europe. They're not cr- of critical importance. They don't have the same economic depth, even historical depth or or cultural depth. They're simply not as important. They're more opportunistic. There's from both sides. Uh, And there's more of a transactional sort of uh, uh, the Middle East is leveraged to uh, or the the ambition is to leverage the Middle East in order to improve your strategic position vis-a-vis Western Europe and vis-a-vis the United States especially. To what extent that's successful is another story. And you also uh, have
0: other values. You have an authoritarian leader,
2: yeah.
0: um, in Vladimir Putin that understands and appeals to the Middle Eastern leaders. Yeah, he's yeah. not. They're not going to be scared by him. He's going to understand them. Why are human rights important? Why Why is democracy important? Putin is never going to, yeah, follow through on like that, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, I think that's
2: exactly right. I, I have a, a segment on that in the report, actually, called the, the authoritarian advantage. And I think there is such a thing. Uh, we tend to be blind to it in Sweden because we're not uh, an authoritarian com- uh, country in that, in that, in that, in that sense. Uh, and there's a, um, a feeling that, you know, democracies are better at everything. I don't think they are. Uh, I think in, in a region like the Middle East, which is perhaps the least democratic region in the world, uh, there is an advantage to be had in being an authoritarian leader, being able to go to these countries, strike a deal mano a mano, you know, you make a handshake, it's done. There's no journalists, no journalists are going to get involved and reveal your secret deal because then they get shot. Uh, there's not going to be a parliamentary investigation, there's not going to be a parliamentary vote, or if there is, it's going to be 100% yes. I mean, that helps when you're making deals with with leaders of the type that rule the Middle East. It's, it's very helpful. And I also think that Uh, that's the technical side of it, but there's also a uh, political or uh, uh, (laughs) almost a philosophical side to it. Uh, Russia uh, promotes itself as a country that supports non-interference, it supports national sovereignty and so forth. In most cases, that's true. Not when it contradicts Russia's own interests, of course, but in the Middle East, that's rarely the case. And uh, for, you know, in, in that, you know, National sovereignty and the right for a leader to do pretty much whatever he chooses to do is is, uh, a concept that's very popular among the leaders themselves. Uh, There's a great deal of demand in the Middle East for an ally that says, you can rule your country whatever way you like. Here's our proposals for trade. Here's our proposals diplomatically, militarily, economically, and so forth. Pick and choose what do you like. We can we can deal over this, but we're not going to get involved and ask that you release prisoners. We're not going to get involved and ask that you have regular elections. We don't care if if you're a, a dictator or not. If you're a democrat, fine, great for you. Uh, and that's that's a pitch that has a lot of deal of, a, lot, a lot of uh, there's a lot of re- receptivity to that in in the region for understandable reasons. And uh, an important reason for that, I think, is because the other and even more influential power in the Middle East, namely the United States, and to a lesser degree Europe, has had the opposite attitude. Uh, for years, especially since the end of the Cold War, but to a limited extent, even before that, they've been badgering these leaders and said, you must release these trade union leaders, you must release these female activists in Saudi Arabia, you must have elections, and uh, you know, arms deals will be scuttled because suddenly some, some journalist discovers that it was a bribe, and it's very annoying. Uh, that doesn't happen with Russia, and I think that's a, a great, great advantage.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your, for your uh, both thoughtful and, and, and somewhat um, uh, humorous, I, I dare say, uh, reply. But uh, um, uh, if we if we focus back to to one of the key countries uh, in the region at the moment, uh, of course, Syria. Um, are we approaching a post-war situation and? What will that situation be like? What what will be the outcome, do you think? We can speculate, both of you, and perhaps a little bit about what you expect Russia to want to, to have the vision of Russia in this.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the post war situation might be stretching it. I think there's certainly a post conflict. Uh, moving into a post-conflict stage in the sense that there's no longer a real conflict over whether Bashar al-Assad should stay or go. great many nations still think he should go, but he doesn't. Uh, and people are starting to deal with that as a fact, and that changes the the outline of the conflict and the dynamics of the conflict. And in that sense, the Russian intervention in 2015 has been, you know, it's it's victory. Uh, but uh, that said, there's still a lot of... of uh, of work involved, and Syria remains a country that's fragmented between Assad's government on the one hand, which controls most of the population, most of the territory, and uh, you have U.S.-backed uh, Kurdish forces in the northeast, you have a U.S. enclave in the south as well, you have Turkish-captured uh, or Turkish-influenced territory in the northwest, and and as a, you know, the, what Russia is doing right now is, is, you know, ideally they'd like to move, the situation to uh, a conclusion in in the UN peace talks in Geneva, where there's a, some sort of a sign-off on the fact that Assad won the war. He's the new and the old leader. He can stay. End of story. Uh, here comes the reconstruction aid. Here comes the, the the we lift the sanctions and so forth. That doesn't seem to be happening. That's Russia's ideal outcome. But in the absence of that, uh, they're willing to play the situation as it is and just wait out the uh, the other the other powers. Um, Uh, Whether that will be successful, of course, I don't know. Uh, But I think Russia is well-placed to guide diplomacy at this point because they simply have a much, much stronger hand than anyone else in Syria. Um, And and, uh, there's no willingness and perhaps even no capacity from uh, other nations in the West or in the Arab world to commit to something that would upend the Russian-backed order. What could upend it, what could change the game completely, of course, is... If there's some sort of an internal collapse within the Syrian regime, there's no sign of that, but it, you know who knows. Um, there could be a regional war. Uh, that's a, a, a greater risk. Uh, there could be a, a flare up in Lebanon between Israel and Hezbollah. There could be uh, clashes between Israel and, and uh, Syrian air defenses in, in Syria because Israel flies there and bombs Iranian and Hezbollah forces all the time. You could have a, well, quite recently you had a shoot down, a Syrian accidental shoot down, apparently, uh, of a, a Russian signals intelligence aircraft outside the Syrian coast during an Israeli attack, and that created a great deal of strain between Israel and Syria, uh, sorry, Israel and Russia. Uh, so there is a, a risk of military flare-ups that doesn't really, you know, they're not coming from Russia, but Russia gets... Sandwiched between these rival powers and the balancing game sort of collapses I think that is on Russia's mind probably and they'd like to do whatever they can to decrease conflict in Syria uh, Even if that means that Assad doesn't get all this territory back uh, Putin has shown I think conclusively that he's quite comfortable with frozen conflicts elsewhere in the world And I don't think that Syria will prove an exception to that Whether he has to agree to leave some territory in the hands of, of Turkey or of even the United States who knows? But but and he'll probably work to to upend it. But but if if the answer is that he has to, then fine. I think. Oh yes, the
0: mic. Now that's an interesting question. What what does he actually afford to lose? And it just comes to mind that um, Russian political analyst Ekaterina Shulman that I talk to quite often. She always reminds me of that survival is a tool to. Sustain power. What the only thing that Putin actually is really, really good at when it comes to to policy making uh, or using his security services or military is to survive. So he's using Assad still as a tool for Russian survival in the region and uh, to sustain the interests of Russia. Um, and that what, what Russian media is spinning right now is uh, that uh, well, without. Russia eliminating the terrorists, speaking of ISIS, the entire entire Syria would have been controlled by by terrorists. So it's still like in the narrative is that, of course, they, they won the war, but they're also reminding everybody of the importance of countering terrorism and that is, is still the idea that is being produced. So it's really important to remember that Survival now is about striking even more deals and being able to, to expand in the region. So Syria is not forgotten. They're still like talking a lot about the humanitarian advances that Russia also are doing. Like instead of just bombing Aleppo, they're now giving uh, like big aid packages and wanting to rebuild what they destroyed. So. Mm-hmm.
2: I think I I've. Um, I'd agree that is the discourse, uh, and I think the in terms of anti-terrorism or counter-terrorism, I think it's obviously it's what you say you will do uh, when you go into a conflict like this. And we heard the rhetoric of uh, Vladimir Putin today is very similar to the rhetoric of George W. Bush in, <laughs> a few years ago. It's it's anti-terrorism and war on terrorism and so forth. Uh, that said, there is a flexibility around who is considered a terrorist. Um, some of the Syrian Islamist groups that were fighting Assad or still are fighting Assad uh, were immediately transformed from terrorists to moderate opposition when they agreed to certain Russian-backed proposals. They just, from, from one day to the other, they, 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 the, the, the description of them in Russian state media changed. So there's a, a degree of flexibility there. Um, in terms of humanitarian aid, I think that touches on the great weakness of, uh, that you outlined earlier, the, the weakness of the Russian economy. Because obviously there's a huge need for, for reconstruction aid and humanitarian aid in Syria. And that would be a, uh, a vector of influence for Russia if it could provide such influence. But it does not.
0: It does not. And they're sending these like press releases from the Russian defense ministry every day. Yeah. Like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Yeah.
2: so like, All the time there are these press releases and there's a picture of a guy handing over a bag of rice. And, you know, the, it's... Have to admire the honesty sometimes because it says like we delivered 15 tons of humanitarian aid, which sounds great until you realize that like the UN delivers thousands of tons of humanitarian aid and that's all funded by the United States and Europe, and Russia gives nothing to to those aid operations. So it's it's really for political spin. Exactly. And if Russia could deliver that amount of humanitarian aid and and reconstruction aid, it would I think because that would be a great way to to lock down its influence in Syria today by just owning the economy. But it doesn't have that power. Interesting. Um, I was
1: thinking that we could all go over into some questions and answers, uh, also introduce the auditorium. Uh, we have a few microphones. Uh, please raise your hand uh, so that uh, you are visible. Uh, I see one already there. Uh, please do not forget to, to also introduce yourself shortly uh, before asking the question, which should be brief.
3: Thank you. I'm Inga Pettel, from one of the universities. Can you hear me? (laughs) Um, I think that already in 2012, we knew that um, Bashar al-Assad would have lost that war hadn't it been for Russian support already at that time or at least refusal to join the rest of the world who were very skeptical of of, of, of his reign in Syria. But I, I so I, I think that you say that Russia went in because it was they saw difference with the rest of the world that Bashar al-Assad could be uh, could continue his reign with adequate support. It's a lot of support that has gone into that, and not only Russian support, but also.
1: Could I? So could I, could I would
3: like you just to say something about what is the important. And second question Chechnya, the 4,000 supposed terrorists of uh, Russian uh, nationality, where does that come in? have to begin Chechnya to understand why now Russia is so much supporting.
1: very good questions Uh, you can both uh, answer them as you in any order you
2: wish I'll take the first one and I pass Chechnya to you is okay yeah Uh, so yes I I, there has certainly been a great deal of support for us as government from Russia uh, and from Iran Iran uh, I don't know about the quantities or the value in dollars or however you want to count it, uh, or in rubles for that matter. Um, the, uh, but Iran is, of course, is a smaller country with a, an even more strained economic situation than Russia, which has something. Uh, and I think Iran has probably stretched itself even further than than Russia to do this, and has also played a similar game in Iraq and other places. So, but I think there was a. Uh, I mean, it's, no, uh, under, it's, an, it's, 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 it's even an understatement, I think, to say that Western policy, U.S. policy, EU policy in Syria has misfired. It didn't work out the way they intended. Uh, and I think if there's an original sin in that that explains the subsequent mistakes and errors, it is the analysis in 2011 that Syria would go down the route of Tunisia and Egypt, um, when in fact Syria was something much more akin to Libya that if you didn't go out in and actually kill Bashar al-Assad, he wouldn't go. He'd stay in whatever part of the country he could control. Perhaps the country would fall apart and become rival enclaves. You'd have Assad here and the Kurds there and the Islamic State there and something else there, some interventions, which is quite close to what happened. Um, But he wouldn't leave unless physically made to leave. Uh, And I think Russia saw that, and I think there's been a great deal of Wishful thinking among Western European diplomats who have felt uh, and said and thought uh, publicly and privately that, you know, if we just keep pushing this, then eventually Russia will sort out the problem. They will get Assad to leave for us. I don't think Russia ever had that power. I don't think Russia has that sort of granular control over Syria. And maybe, you know, to the extent they can make Assad leave, they'd probably have to rip out the core of the government to do it and break up their entire strategic position. They'd have to take on Iran and split that alliance. It doesn't work. So what they had was a, a barely functional uh, central government or regime in Syria that they could support and saw a decent chance of victory, and then they saw a lot of other worse options. Um, and I think they went in with, uh, with that in mind. And the support they provided in, in the early years of the war was not that impressive, actually. It was uh, The diplomatic support was firm and important especially what ha- given what happened to Libya in Libya, because Bashar al-Assad's great fear was that there would be a Libyan-style intervention against him. Russia closed that off, uh, killed it in, in 2012. Um, they, um, there was arms deliveries, but uh, at least if you listen to SIPRI, the uh, think tank here in Stockholm, who track arms deliveries internationally, they say that the, the Russian arms deliveries to Syria actually tapered off. From 2013 and onward, because there was a lot of deals that had been made in the late, uh, um, how do you say, (laughs) zeros before 2010, Um, uh, and and uh, those things kept getting delivered. Russia wouldn't accept any arms embargoes or or anything of the sort, but they didn't really conclude. Assad also wanted uh, air air defense missiles. He wanted, he'd ordered uh, jets, but he hadn't paid for them, so he didn't get them. Uh, They did deliver some, you know lower quality second-hand tanks and armored vehicles and, and lots of ammunition. But that wasn't very costly. You know, you whatever, sort of, whatever you have in your stockpiles, the, it's, the, it's nearing expiration date already. Just ship it to Syria. So that wasn't too expensive. The, 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 the real investment comes in 2015, I think, when, when the aerial intervention happens. And even that doesn't seem to have been that expensive. Putin claims that he funded the whole thing. Through the the military exercise budget, we'll, instead of exercising in Russia, we'll just do it in Syria. And uh, according to to uh, Russian military experts or experts on the Russian military, I should say, um, that seems not too far from the truth. Actually, um, there are surely costs involved, but there hadn't, you know, the the number of dead Russian soldiers is is below one hundred and fifty, I think. Uh, there are some um, added casualties among mercenaries and private contractors, but not a lot. I mean, it's, it's sustainable so far. So, yeah.
0: Chechnya. Well, I actually just returned from Chechnya uh, a week ago. And we have to divide this. I mean, I, I, I won't give a lecture on Chechnya fully, but we need to keep in mind that um, before we, we have the, the idea that Ramzan Kadyrov, um, or the fact... The president of Chechnya, um, that he has—he's he, appointed by the Kremlin after the Chechen wars. So this was—this is a man that, by Anna Politovska, the fantastic Russian journalist, is described as a small dragon that's being fed by the Kremlin. And if he is not controlled, he can lose control. And uh, Kadyrov has been sending Chechen fighters to Syria uh, to help the Syrian government. That is one. But also we have over the number you mentioned, these um, 4,000 radical fighters that have left both Dagestan and Chechnya, the neighboring republic, and also ex-Soviet nations to fight with the Islamic State in Syria. And these people started to leave around 2013, 2014, and when I've been traveling all over Dagestan and Chechnya have met relatives that have confirmed that Russian security forces have actually wanted these men to leave from Russia. And it's easier for them to be killed in Syria. Because why do we need them? This was also part of a campaign uh, just ahead of the Olympics in 2014 in Sochi. So I mean, there are, you have Kadyrov helping the Syrian government and you also have these radical fighters that are dreaming for a better life in their sense, leaving uh, these republics that are being wiped out. And for Putin, he's been fighting terrorism all his life. So for him to have them out, well, from a Russian perspective, military perspective, that's great because if they come back, now people have started to come back from ISIS, they will be a security threat. So you have the idea of Kadyrov sending people, but you also have the security threat. Because for Putin to sustain power is also very much based on the perceived threat. And these people are a huge, real threat to Russia. And I've met people that have come back from, from Syria now that are actually, Kadyrov is bringing them back as well as a way to help them, especially the women and the children which is completely a different strategy compared to what the West is doing. So this is a part of a huge story that is going to continue and develop. But they are dangerous and there are interests also from a national security level for, for the Russians.
1: You actually had a very nice article on the sort of uh, the bringing back and the sort of, sort of, uh, of these families from ISIS territories in S- uh, Svenska Dagblad, I think, yes. last week, which I recommend you to everybody to read it. Um, I have uh, a few more
4: questions. Was there? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, My name is Ruth Baparci. I'm head of the Middle East program here. Uh, Aaron, very good article. Uh, Enjoyed reading it. Enjoyed your conversation. Thank you. But I have one point where I would like to push you a bit, and that's I think perhaps you were letting the Americans and the Europeans off the hook a bit too easy when it comes to the differentiation between what the uh, authoritarian regimes in the, in the region can expect from them compared to what they can expect from Vladimir Putin. Because I think, you know, if you look at it historically, it's only in the very recent past that the Americans and the Europeans have made more than noise about democratization. I mean, the Americans were never serious about pushing any of their authoritarian clients before. So I think you have two, two key points where from very different directions. One is the invasion of Iraq where the Saudis were shocked not that Saddam Hussein was removed, but that he wasn't replaced with another Sunni dictator. And the second one is that Obama did not support and defend Mubarak, which means that they then felt that they could not fully trust America. Were it not for that, I think business as usual would have suited them quite well.
2: I I agree with that. I I think the... um, uh, it isn't so much that there's a sincere, always um, um, attempt to democratize these regimes, but to an extent there is. And things like the Iraq War were greatly driven by an agenda to reform and change the Middle East. For you know, for as it turned out, not a very smart thing to do. But but that was part of the motivation for doing it. it was not just about oil or you know. Um, I think the, the in in the recent years, I think the removal of first Ben Ali and then Mubarak was really key to how many of these uh, very much status quo oriented Sunni Gulf Gulf powers uh, view the United States. Um, they 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 did not uh, see the United States as a reliable ally anymore, and to to an extent, I think that was because they raised their expectations to levels where the United States would not follow, and that had to do with Syria in particular, where they expected the United States to go in and fix it for them. It did not. Um, uh, But also because the United States, in some sense, backed away from the Cold War contract with them. that will protect you no matter what happens. And it turned out in Egypt they wouldn't. And now you have rulers in the Gulf who are concerned about their security. You have rulers in Egypt, especially, who uh, feel that the United States betrayed them and let the Muslim Brotherhood take power and, and is somehow allied with uh, Islamists and so forth. So I, I, I think that's really the, the key thing. Uh, regarding democracy and so forth in, in, um, in Western policy, it is an element. Uh, but I think the larger point is is that Putin, as an authoritarian leader of an authoritarian government, is more flexible. He can do things quickly. He can do things without a lot of need for internal processing and so forth. Uh, in ways that that Western governments not cannot always. I think a, a, a reminder of that is the the Swedish attempts to write a law to to, to ban uh, membership of the Islamic State or travel to the to the to the, to the region, which is only now starting to, to move. That's a, a, an illustration of how slow uh, Western democracies can be when it comes to legislation that matters to these countries. Uh, that you don't have really in Russia. When something needs to happen, it happens. Very
1: good. Um, Ingmar? Then I have a few more hands. Yes, I've I
5: noted... <laughs> um, both of you speakers uh, said that Putin speaks to everyone, everyone in the Arab world. Um, but is that true for Libya, um, which is involved in a civil war? I doubt Russia speaks to the government there, and I've heard they um, they are having. Um, they do support a general in eastern Libya. Uh, how serious is that?
2: Well, uh, well, I have a, there's a small segment on that in the board as well. Um, oh, right. Just <laughs> <laughs> so, sure. I'll, uh, I, yes, they do support uh, General Khalifa Haftar in the east of Libya. Uh, partly, I think, as an outgrowth of their attempts to court uh, the Egyptians and the United Arab Emirates who support him. He's their anti-Islamist guy. He just wants power. But, but you know, he's fighting an Islamist, uh, Islamisty. Government in Tripoli, so so um, he's by default on that position. Um, they support him, but they also have relations to the government in Tripoli. They're trying to cast as wide a net as possible. Um, Deputy Prime Minister, sorry, Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov, who is the Middle East guy at the Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, he said recently that he even sees a role for Saif al-Islam al-Gaddafi, the son of Muammar Gaddafi, who's been in prison for a while, but now is is, is somewhere else, um, and. Uh, so I mean I, I think the Libya is a is a is a conflict where Russia has invested to a degree, but hasn't really picked a, a, a strategic direction yet. They're just seeing that this is not it's not ripe for resolution, but it's perhaps uh, uh, an easy there's there's a political property to be had so to speak. Uh, so for the future, they're investing now.
1: Okay. Maria, you, ha- you had.
0: Well, I can add that. Um, Russia wants more influence in Africa. So uh, Libya could be a stepping stone. What is known now is that Russian mercenaries have arrived in Libya. I've seen figures about, you know, the private military companies. That's also something that Aaron writes about in his report, which is very, very interesting and current. Russia... Is working with private military companies because they don't do not want to risk Russian servicemen's lives. Probably you know this already. In Libya, there are allegedly 300 uh, mercenaries that have arrived recently to help secure important ports. So this is like for from a security perspective, it's interesting to monitor what the next step is going to be uh, for Libya.
1: Good. Um, I have. Now, one question here also.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Uh, <clears> Buman. <throat> according to the uh, Moon, for example, uh, it's a question regarding the importance of the military, <coughs> for the Russian military, of the Syrian experience since, uh, according to Monde and of forces thousands of soldiers and almost all the officers, uh, and of course, with the new a lot of weapons have been able to train in syria uh, with a valuable experience that they may would could use elsewhere how important was this experience from for the military
2: yeah i I've, I've i've seen uh, uh i I, I, um. I can repeat yeah i if I heard you correctly, the question was, Russian soldiers and, and officers especially have rotated through Syria in, in the recent years and gained a lot of, of uh, valuable experience. How important is that? Correct? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't know is my short answer, but I've seen those reports as well. And uh, I think the Russian foreign ministry or maybe defense ministry um, issued a statement to that effect saying that basically all of our... You know, or all of our pilots have now rotated through Syria, so they've had some live action missions, um, and I'm sure that is valuable. That said, I think the Russian conflict, sorry, the Syrian conflict, is uh, a very peculiar kind of war where they're only, mostly, only providing aerial support, and um, um, uh, it's a small contingent of Russian soldiers, and they're backing another army, so they're getting useful training, I think, for that, uh, which is a, a type of conflict that Russia hasn't really been. That involved in, in, in recent years, but but if they're planning to do something else in Libya <laughs> or other places in the future, then I'm sure it's been it's been very useful.
1: Okay. Um, yes, we have a few more questions uh, on the list. Um, okay, yes.
6: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Pierre Gransdot. I have been active on a parliamentary level in Swedish foreign policy for quite some time in the past. Uh, And now I'm writing about these matters. Um, uh, My my first question was, uh, what is the real interest of Russia uh, to be involved or to be in control in the Middle East? I mean, for the Western powers, it's one very important driving factor is, of course, the need to control the oil supply. But... uh, that's not a factor for Russia? Or is it mainly a matter of showing that they are a world power still? Uh, That's one question I've been asking myself for quite some time. Uh, Then another thing, when you uh, mentioned um, possible conflicts that might flare up, uh, I didn't hear you mention a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And uh, of course... Many things that this is uh, a rather important conflict lying behind the surface. Um, was it intentional or didn't you just think of it at that time?
1: I, uh, for both of you, yes. Or, In I'll, any, I'll, any, any way you, you wish to
2: reply. I'll start? Okay. <laughs> uh, last part, part first. Uh, I... I Don't know if I mentioned the Saudi-Iranian conflict. Uh, If I didn't, then probably I should have. Uh, It's a very important uh, part of the security architecture, if you can talk about a security architecture in the Middle East today. Um, And it's certainly something that's on Russia's mind because they want good relations with Iran. They also want good relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudis and Iranians hate each other. So how do they negotiate that? Uh, it's it's a problem. Uh, it's part of this balancing game that Russia engages in, and uh, so far it's been it's been going well. Uh, their relations with Iran have deepened through the Syrian war, where they fight side by side and collaborate uh, a great deal. Uh, and uh, the Saudi government as well has has uh, approached Russia partly to prevent Russia from drifting too far to Iran. So there's a a regional balancing game going on as well. Um, in terms of actual interests, well, that's the whole, well, the whole shebang, I think they, they, uh, you know, Russia, as any other government, has a, a great deal of different interests, uh, ranging from security to to cultural values and other soft uh, items. Uh, oil and gas is absolutely on Russia's mind a lot, uh, not because Russia needs to import the oil and gas like some Western countries does do, uh, but because they are very dependent on oil uh, prices being high. Uh, so, in the past two years, for example, Russia has collaborated closely with Saudi Arabia at the expense of Iran, by the way, uh, to, uh, to raise oil prices and, and uh, almost sidelining OPEC uh, a little bit. Uh, and they've driven up oil prices now after a slump to around 60-something dollars per, per barrel, which is comfortable enough for Russia and uh, they hope i guess to to keep them there but apart from that i mean there's uh uh, gas pipelines are important a big thing because russia has both political and economic stakes in gas markets in europe and elsewhere um uh, counterterrorism already mentioned uh, uh, the the issue of prestige and great power being the great power that you talk to to solve problems is important i think Mm -hmm. Uh, and that ties in with the rivalry with the United States. If there's a vacuum, then why shouldn't we step in instead of letting the United States have it? If we can edge the United States out of something, then why not? Um, so that's a factor as well. And I think also the uh, uh, one shouldn't underestimate this uh, the, the the status quo orientation of Russia in the Middle East, which is what makes it so attractive to many Middle Eastern leaders. That Russia just Russia wants to sell weapons and grain and nuclear plants and whatever to the Middle East, doesn't want a lot of conflict, doesn't want a lot of Islamist uprisings, wants to keep things stable uh, for its own good. Uh, and, and that uh, dovetails with the interests of, of uh, a bunch of Middle Eastern leaders, I think.
0: Now that's a good summary. And we should also mention, maybe, we haven't been speaking so much about tartruth the naval base, um, which is also, like, it gives Russia ability to operate in the Mediterranean, which is a very important factor. I mean, to counter NATO, it will always be not only a symbolic thing, but it's important for Russia to still remind the world that it is a superpower, and the Middle East is the only place where Russia can get that happen. So even if they're a bad negotiator or a mediator, they're still doing it, and reminding everybody about the arms sales, the energy corporations and securing oil and gas contracts is super important, especially when the EU is, doesn't really want to give Russia like, c- complete access to the Turk Stream or the, the, the North Stream gas pipeline. So, superpower, I think not, but they want to be perceived as a superpower.
1: Very interesting. Um, we have one more question here before Mr. Ambassador, my good friend, nice to see you again. <laughs> Uh, But please.
3: uh. Hi, uh, my name is Afrad Hochstedtler. I'm the deputy chief of mission at the Israeli embassy. Um, I'm very curious to know, uh, since you mentioned counterterrorism, how can that be a factor for Russian involvement if, number one, said that they talk to everyone, and number two, they are flexible about the definition of what terrorist organizations are? Thank you.
2: Yeah, I mean, why? I don't see the contradiction there, actually. of course, they're pursuing uh, counter-terrorist ambitions with Russian security in mind. Um, I guess, from an Israeli perspective, Russia's near alliance with Hezbollah is a troubling development that seems to go against the uh, the grain there. But uh, from a Russian perspective, I'm not sure that's a big problem. Uh, I spoke to one uh, guy at the Russian International Affairs Council who summarized it quite nicely. I said, "He said that you know why if Russia is so concerned about." Uh, about jihadism, why do they work with Iran and with with Hezbollah, which are you know Shia Islamist and and support you know Shia jihadis, and that's why, because Russia doesn't have a lot of Shia Muslims in 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 Russia or in its n- immediate neighbourhood. It's all Sunni, so Shia Islamism is not a big problem for them. And Iran, by uh, you know uh, for reasons of its own, lines up with a lot of its uh, security interests in the Middle East, uh, but. You know, uh, it's it's uh, something that I'm sure is is uh, continuously being negotiated with uh, with between Moscow and Tehran, Moscow and Jerusalem, Moscow and and a lot of other governments. Uh, so um, um, yeah, if that answered the question, I don't know.
1: <laughs> hey, um, would you like to add something to this?
0: No, um, Netanyahu was there in February. He's been. In coming and going. And now we will see what the Russian foreign ministry will say further about the Golan Heights. I mean, if it's going to stir up some kind of problem. But I mean, he's there. He travels there. in, In the same way that Putin talks to Erdogan on the phone and invites, well, Saudi Arabia's King and like as the first monarch from Saudi Arabia to to come to Moscow, that was a huge thing. So this is just going to continue the, until somebody realizes that something's not working.
1: Interesting.
5: Uh, yes, please. Thank you, the Georgian Embassy. I have a quite short question. How it happens that Russia is against separatists in Syria but supporting? Separatives in Georgia, Ukraine, even on some extent Moldova. Can you give me some explanation?
2: Thank you. Um. <laughs> well, I think the the way uh, how Russia reconciles the idea of uh, Crimea being able to go to Russia, but the Golan not being able to go to Israel, and separatism in northeastern Syria being wrong, but in Abkhazia or somewhere else being right—one of the great mysteries of <laughs> of international politics, I guess. Uh, they're not the only government that is is uh, um, has that kind of creative outlook on international affairs. I think uh, the United States comes to mind as well, and a lot of other governments.
0: Well, as long as they deny that they support separatists, then
2: of course they'll deny it. So
0: they will even.
1: Very good question. Yes, sir, you have been uh, wanting to ask a question for a while, I know. Uh, and we have a, a few more. Um, I have also done a few more names on the list.
3: Okay. Uh, Bengt Christiansson. How does Russia navigate in the war in Yemen, particularly related to the Gulf monarchies?
1: Yemen. Okay, we'll just we we'll, we'll just check every country in the region. Yeah, let's do it. This is very, very pedagogical. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Please,
2: okay. A Yemen. Uh, I think, generally speaking, they try not to <laughs> get too involved. Uh, Russia's involvement in Yemen has been uh, largely, as a member of the Security Council, being able to approve or strike down resolutions proposed there. Um, and also how to interpret and, and act upon reports about arms embargoes and so forth from within the UN system. Um, there's been a balancing there. Uh, generally speaking, they, at first, I think, supported the uh, uh, you know accepted uh, Saudi arguments, but then has tipped somewhat to the Iranian side to block sanctions being imposed in in retaliation for arms deliveries to the Houthi side by the Iranians and so forth. So it's it's very much a Russia-oriented policy, I think. Uh, trade a little here and trade a little there. And sanctions, we don't like sanctions, so let's not have sanctions. Uh, and that kind of, uh, kind of involvement. There is a historical role for Russia in, in Yemen. Uh, South Yemen was the only communist Arab state. Uh, South Yemen does no longer exist, uh, so it was swallowed up by by North Yemen and just became Yemen in in 1990. Uh, and I think that historical uh, uh, legacy matters very little at this point. That the 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 generation of of politicians who were schooled and trained and loyal to the Soviet Union has by now virtually disappeared, and Russia doesn't really have a role there, uh, or isn't playing on those strings really. So it's it's been a fairly passive uh, spectator to the war, in Yemen and so forth. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Okay, yes. Please help us pass the microphone. Uh, and let's hope it works also. Uh, my name
7: is Kjell Longquist. Uh, I think the Russian uh, idea about the Middle East and basically in the whole world is that they are pressing national sovereignty because they don't like the policy that was under Bush and Obama or regime change. That's why they are acting in the Middle East, I think. Uh, Then uh, about terrorism, isn't it like that uh, uh, it's uh, the reason for this uh, uh, sunny terrorism is uh, the missionaries from Saudi Arabia Wahhabism all over the world where there existed any community of uh, uh, Sunni Muslims. I mean the same in uh, Chechnya as in Stockholm or in Gothenburg. It is all Wahhabism missionaries that has created this problem. And as uh, uh, some uh, well-known people knows, without that missionaries there shouldn't be any Sunni. Uh, terrorists around the world. Isn't that correct? And uh, I mean, look what the the West uh, regime change has done to Middle East. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, 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 Libya, and so on. Uh, And uh, where is China in all this also? I think China wants to build up the Middle East. Don't you think so?
1: Okay, thank you. Very good. So there was was a lot of food of thought uh, Food for thought in in those questions, but we'll try to answer them right. As yeah, best of our capacity.
2: Uh, I think it's absolutely correct that Russia pushes the uh, national sovereignty argument very hard in in virtually all of its uh, uh, international uh, interactions. Uh, not necessarily with Ukraine, but with some other countries. Um, mm-hmm. That is a. I mean, it's 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 fundamental, I think, to the Russian outlook and to long term Russian interests because there's a fear that if interventions start happening in other countries, eventually the dominoes will go all the way to the Kremlin. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I, think, I think that's a, an important and genuine driver of Russian uh, policy, but also, of course, an argument that is used uh, insincerely in some cases. Um, as for terrorism, I think terrorism or, or jihadism or uh, Islamist radicalism in the Middle East, Sunni or Shia, there are many, 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 many complex reasons uh, in terms of Sunni uh, radicalism, Saudi Arabia, and Saudi uh, religious establishment is absolutely a part of the backstory. story. Uh, less so today, I would say, than in years past. Uh, but it's something that Russia was very concerned about and angry about in the 1990s when they uh, continuously accused Saudi Arabia of being behind the uprising in Chechnya. Uh, with the the war in Chechnya, um, uh, with there were there was some merit to that as well. Not that Saudi Arabia started it, but there were uh, clerics and foundations and individuals and networks in Saudi Arabia that raised money for fighters and so forth. So there was a, an issue, and and uh, a few years later, in two thousand one, the United States suddenly came to the same conclusion and ordered Saudi Arabia to shut those fundraisers down, and they did. Uh, so. Um, uh, yes, but I think that argument is also—it uh, shouldn't be reduced to that. Uh, it's not very much, not a single uh, uh, single cause problem.
1: Okay, uh, we have uh, I have one more uh, person on my list, uh, uh, Chris Edwards. I know your name already, so I'll just introduce you. Please.
7: Thank you very much. My name is Chris Edwards. Um, during the early years, I think many of us, <laughs> many of us were uh, impatient and finally disappointed with the lack of intervention from the uh, American side uh, against the repetitive bombings. Would it be fair to say that had President Obama um, decided to bomb out a relevant number of airstrips, or indeed? Uh,
1: <laughs> this, we'll end the seminar with a great counterfactual. Uh,
2: the great counterfactual. Uh, I think if, if, I mean, yes, if things had happened differently, then the dif- results would be different, of course. Uh, how would they be different? That's perhaps a harder question to answer. I think the, uh, uh, it's possible that Syrian government behavior could have been curtailed in different ways uh, if there had been certain clear military consequences to that possible uh but i don't think it's uh it was ever certain and i think what obama you know if summarizing this in <laughs> so many words i think what obama saw in 2012 13 was that there was no good outcome uh to this conflict and uh he didn't have an alternative to assad except going in and investing a lot of american attention uh into the conflict and i've spoken to uh bunch of Obama administration officials, former Obama administration officials, about this. And the thing that always comes back is that they recognize that Syria was a very different kind of conflict from Iraq. But the consequence, the result could be the same, that Syria could be the same sort of attention, resource, energy drain that Iraq became for the United States. It could be a war that they invested in, could not get out of, and would be stuck in for the next 10 years or in Iraq, what are we on, 15? Uh, so um, I think that was a real fear, and they wanted to, The Obama came into office wanting to pivot away from the Middle East and start spending time on, well, Russia and China and East Asia and so forth, and and, and that didn't really <laughs> pan out as intended. Uh, but I think that was the, the fear, and I think that there was no, there was never an easy solution to Syria, and I don't think... Uh, it was it was realistic to believe that you know a few bombs here and there would have would have would have changed things in a meaningful way. Is my guess. Mm. Um, we, yeah, of course we
1: have time for mo- one more question. Uh, please.
5: Thank you. My name is Hans Kurell. I'm the former and the general for legal affairs and the legal council of the United Nations. Underlying all this that we are discussing here is actually the question of the rule of law, My question is against the background that we had organized, the International Bar Association, a major meeting in Moscow a few years ago. And on that occasion, Valery Zorkin, the President of the Constitutional Court of Russia, had provided an excellent article on this topic. Is there any discussion now in Russia, on the rule of law, is there any criticism of the manner in which the Russian government behaves, which is actually a flagrant violation of the rule of law? We had the attacks on Georgia, the attacks on Ukraine, for example. As if, of course, we mustn't forget that the UK and the United States of America attacked Iran, uh, Iraq back in 2003. These are permanent members of the Security Council, flagrantly violating the very charge they are set to supervise. Is there no discussion about these things in Russia? Thank you.
0: Thank you for a brilliant question. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was this um, anniversary of the, the war of Afghanistan, uh, 30 years. And I think m- my attempt to answer your question has to start with that, because instead of saying anything about the the many civilians that were dead, and all of the human cost that also was a part of how many lives were lost Russian lives. Everything from Duma uh, deputies and also different pro Kremlin experts was that this is, we actually won the war. Everything is coming down to not a discussion about rule of law, but about disinformation, about how can we strengthen the patriotism of today, uh, using history as an example. And uh, it's a shame, but I do not hear Russian officials in any on any level, even if Zakharova, she's basically, she doesn't have any real knowledge, I think, about what's going on, or other dipl- diplomats that are above her, maybe don't provide her with that information, but, I mean, we're seeing much more disinformation campaigns and targets uh, where, Moscow unfortunately tries to um, go around itself, and s- instead of saying, "Okay, maybe we were wrong when it comes to Afghanistan, what happened there," or Chechnya, for example. I mean, you're trying to to keep all the discussions about self-reflect, like being self-reflexive, as far away as possible. So, and that is a result of. Putin's ratings being low maybe, but it's also a bigger discussion of you don't want to be perceived as weaker. And that isn't something that your population does not need in a sense when your leader has been in power for such a long time and people are starting to get tired of him. So you have a discussion about rule of law when it comes to talking with families that have lost um, members of their family or even with these military companies in Russia, I've spoken to several relatives that are like, can you please bring back my son? Why are we paying for the Syrian war with cost of our own lives? Even if the numbers are not high officially, there is a big sorrow about this, what the policy is actually happening, but nobody will go and say that publicly, unfortunately.
1: Um, So again, we thank our two panelists with a round of applause, and uh, most likely um, we will And most likely we will have good reason to return to this topic uh, within a reasonable time frame. But please go to ui.se and download Aron's latest report. It was published this morning. It's a thick report, a long read, which will keep you busy for the weekend. and confidence.
0: Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews.